My phone goes off nonstop, so forgive me. Not a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, better known as J. Mace. And right now we're going to get into an interview with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. And I have a guest who was on Beyond the Album Cover before, music industry executive extraordinaire, Mr. Kevin Willie. Mr. Willie, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. I, yes, sir. I appreciate you taking your time out to do this schedule and amidst the lovely background that you have behind you. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. It's a great day out here today. Yeah. Enjoy look, it. Yeah, it looks like a it's day like where it's always three. five o'clock somewhere. But um, we're going to continue fun. where we left off on uh, part one of your interview with me. Now, late last year, we had a loss in the music industry. We lost Mr. Andre Harrell who created yes. Uptown Records and launched the careers of many superstars from Mary J. Blige, Jodeci, I'll Be Sure, Guy, Ava Young, Sean, Diddy Combs, his star in the music industry. And can you tell me about the impact of Mr. Harrell, Uptown Records, and then the enormous yeah. legacy that he left? Yes. And, and Andre was like an incredible guy. He actually sent Sean to me, he sent Puff to me, to like sort of mentor and do some stuff because I was still at the club at the time, although I was working at Atlantic, I think it was Atlantic or Columbia, I'm not sure which, but you know, th those were the days, man. Music was so incredible back then. Artists came to the DJ booth, came to hang out, came to hear music, hear their music. You know, Teddy Riley, the whole guy crew lived almost in Bentleys hanging out with us. And, and so music back then was so, the music industry as well as Music musicians, it was so tight back then. The artists all came to the club and hung out there while I was a DJ. And it made it really nice because they got to hear their music. They were influenced by the music I was playing. And it just made it, the music scene in New York was incredible. You know, this is even prior to the days of Heavy D, you know, uh, before Jodeci ever got on, all those artists, their, their genesis was the nightclub and the nightclub spurned their artistry. So I really, I feel good about that. Bentley's was like the number one club in New York and we made it work. We made it, it was popping. Now was Bentley's primarily R&B music oriented in the DJ booth or did they sprinkle in a little bit of rap in there? Was it one of those spots where oh, you- Oh, I, I played, I played everything. There was no limits to what I played. Um, I played R&B, I played hip hop, uh, I played album cuts. I played whatever came to mind. You know, like uh, for example, Earth, Wind & Fire had an interlude called Brazilian Rhyme. And it was on uh, it was on one of their albums. It's an album cut on one of the albums. And that ba -da -ba 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 -ba, ba -da -ba -ba -ba. And I felt like it was important to play that in between other songs. So it was sort of like an interlude. And I kept playing it. Then I took two copies and extended it and just kept doing it. That was like one of the things I did. And before, after I did that, I'd play like uh, running Away by Roy Ayers. And it was just like the crowd would explode because they're vibing to this one thing and then bam, here comes another song that they love. And it was the, the thing about me at Bentley's was I felt like it was important to play hit after hit after hit. And it made it work for the nightclub. It made it also work for musicians because they, they started thinking, how could I make a record, a great record, and then follow it with another and then another. So when you started hearing great albums, but where the entire album was played, that's where it came from. Playing DJs playing record after hit after hit after hit after hit. And so they started like recording albums. 
That's why if you like music and you listen to an album like Intro's album, every single song is a hit. Everyone, I defy anybody, play that album from beginning to end and tell me there's, there's, there's records that aren't hits. Every single song is a hit. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we try to do as DJs. Mm -hmm. And that New Life album, just as good as the debut in about a year or so ago, Damian Lillard sampled Don't Leave Me on the record that he just did. And I was like, man, 20-something years later and Intro's debut album still holds up. Rest in peace, Kenny Green. Yes, man. That album is still amazing, man. I still, to this day, I'm like, I always wish we had put out more songs. I think about it now, like, oh, man. Don't Leave so Me should have been a single. That should have been a single. Absolutely. That would have been a single, actually. Yeah, it's wow. just, you know, we just ran out of time. We were thinking about the next thing. And I was thinking about my career, what I was going to do next. And I was thinking that it was time for me to move on. So I was like, how am I going to do that uh, and, and stay and try to do another album? So I just said, got to go. Right. Now you mentioned... Yeah, now you mentioned the DJ scene in the nightclubs. Now I'm sure at this yeah. time, a lot of the DJs probably had covers over the labels, so you couldn't see what they were playing. So that kind of let you know, hmm, I really got to dig deep and crate dig. That's right. I think, well, I was a creator, so DJs were following me. I wasn't following them. So, but but I, I didn't care if you saw this record I played. Some DJs did do that, I got to admit, but I didn't do that. I, you can see the record I'm playing. You got to figure out how to blend that record with the next record and not do what I did. Because I was a creative DJ, I could take different songs and blend them together. My thing was always about blending as opposed to just cutting, cut one song and cut another. So I love to blend music together. And I think what it did, what it does for a dancer is they can flow from one song to another. Uh, other DJs couldn't do that. So they would try to come up with some unique style to make them stand out. And that, that worked for them. And what, I, what worked for me was good. I love blending music. I love songs blending together. And I like the flow of a DJ. You know, they don't flow like they used to anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I heard, I was listening to the radio today and I heard a DJ that was actually flowing. He was mi mixing, blending, cutting, doing the whole repertoire. And I was like, DJ is still an art. It still exists. It's still good. And it makes better musicians, in my opinion. It makes other musicians like, you know, get their weight up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because a lot of the old school DJs were talking about how when they first got started, they would lock themselves in a room, have their records. You had to learn the record inside and out, know your intros, know your outros, know your breaks, put your tapes in. So that by the time you got your first gig, you were right. You were ready. That's right. That's how I started. I stuck my, my speakers in the window and DJed in my bedroom and kept going until... So finally somebody called me and said, can you do a party for me? And I was ready. And then it was another call and another call. And before you know it, I'm just working every day. And it was like, it was like, I had to choose between, should I go to law school or should I be a DJ? And DJ and one, it was easy. It was hands down at one because that love of music. You know, one, one other thing you said about, about the music is very true. I would learn to take the strings from one song and mix it with the baseline of another song or the strings from one song and the strings in another song or the, the baseline in one song with the baseline of another. And that was what, what excited me about DJing because you could, it's almost like producing, like you can reproduce a song. You're playing the guitar part in one song and the drum part in another and they sound like they belong together. And next thing you know, that one song that started ends and the other one picks up and you're like, what happened? 
I didn't feel that transition, but that's what I mean. That's the art of DJ, where you can take one song and another song and blend them together, and you don't know that they changed. So I, I, I really respect the art of DJ, and that was really what I strive to do as a DJ myself. Mm-hmm. Now with the art and of DJ, yeah. Now with the art of DJing, how do you know not to play your big records too early in a set or when to blend in certain records? Because there's a tempo, there's a temperature of the room that you got to read as a DJ because you don't want to get your crowd peaking too early. So by the time it's almost last call, then they're faded out. Well, I, I, had, a, I had multiple peaks in the night. I didn't just have one peak, I had multiple peaks. I would actually build up to a peak, bring them back down, bring them back up, and I could do it at will. The one thing about DJs is they have to learn how to flow with the tempo. You can build up the tempo or bring down the tempo. You can start low and build up, start high and build down. It really depends on your room. You, When I play music, I play based on the room. I don't play, oh, I know I'm gonna play this song, then that song, then that song. I don't play that way. I watch the room. I see what song works, and then I try to flow with that song and see where that song could take me. I'm like five songs ahead in my head. I'm mixing this one song, but I'm thinking five songs ahead. So if I play that, 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 and that, it'll bring them to a peak. And then I can bring them down slightly, take them over here, and bring them back to another peak. And that's what I would do. So it was that's the most incredible thing about me playing back in the day in Bentley's in the shadow and still the shadow was I was able to recreate music to the point where you build them up to such a high, even if it's a song they heard and they know, here's an example. And that, let's say this is a song that you know is one of the hottest songs. Sometimes I would just tease the intro and the crowd would go crazy. Other times I would tease, tease rather the middle of the song, which was the hottest song, or just start in the middle of the song and then they're dancing on one thing and then they hear that song that they love and they're like, oh my God, then they go crazy and you bring them back and you bring them forth and you keep moving them around, they don't know what's coming next and you keep surprising them. They're waiting for that surprise like, oh, oh. And, and my feeling was whenever I could get the crowd to scream spontaneously, I had them. And that was what that was the one thing about me as a DJ in Bentley's and Silver Shadow, Red Parrot. Anytime I played, my vibe was to get them screaming, singing, you know, doing all like vibing with the song so much that they know every word they're screaming out loud, the high, you know, out of, out of key and everything, singing that song out of key. You know, if I'm playing, and I wish I never met, I mean, I want the crowd to sing it. It's not so much me just playing it. I want to play a song that makes them sing the words. So I, I think the art of DJing is that. It is a skill and definitely something not to be taken lightly. Definitely get your yeah. weight up, study your records, and don't rely on Serato or any technology to do it for you. Because when it goes out, you're going to be left with nothing right. if you don't know how to do it manually. Because they used to get out a stopwatch and time the beats per minute. Yes. we did. I, in the very beginning, I did that. After a while, you know, once you do it so much, you hear the beat, you can say, oh, that's 96, that's 100, that's 102. You know, you just do it, like, naturally. Uh, but it takes a while to do that. Once you're doing it, you know, looking at your stopwatch or counting the stopwatch, you know, what I would do is 15 seconds times four. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, and then you kind of get a range. It's not going to be exact, but it's going to be a range. But now with, like, Serato, you don't have to do that. It's already in there. You know, it's already when you, when you upload the song, beat per minute comes up, 
and tells you uh, when it gets the faster tempos, the slower tempos, you know, you can change the range in Serato. So uh, it's just, Serato just made everything so much easier for DJs. It really did. Right. And now in the beginning day, if, I'm sorry, let me interrupt. In the beginning, when DJs would play, if you look at the top of the record, you'll see the beat per minute. You'll, you'll get an old copy of record on a vinyl and you'll see 92. You know that that's a DJ that did that because the DJ set up his records in those orders and, and tempo order so that they, they can flow in the, in, the, in the night. Right. And I'm sure that is why you had somebody like an understudy that would be by you carrying your crates, handing you your records. So that way you can know, okay, this is 90 beats per minute. Let me go to this crate here, hand me this. And that was the way of somebody young and wanting to come in the game. That's how they earned their stripes. Yep, yep. Even people like Flex, you know, fuck Master Flex, he he got on carrying like Chuck Chillouts records and and, and 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 Red Alert. You know, these guys, everybody sort of, there was like a pecking order back then, like you said. Like if you're gonna, if you wanna be a DJ and you want me to show you this, you gotta carry my records. That was sort of the, the way you got in. And people were willing to do that. Look at Flex now, you know, and, that, and that's what it took. Those, mm. are the, those are the early days of DJ, man. DJ was like such an art. It was so hard to do. It was so hard to get gigs consistently that you had to be good to do it. And the one thing for me was practicing four hours a day, you know, in, in junior high school, practicing four hours a day, listening to, you know, trying to blend records together without the right equipment and then finally you get better equipment and you start getting better at it. I went through all those different changes, you know, not having the right amplifier receiver. Then you get hired to do a gig. Now you have to have better equipment because now you're in a bigger room. You're not in your bedroom anymore. Now you have to have giant speakers. And the speakers for me was GLI, GLI speakers, GLI mixer, you know, the, what is it? 990 and the 1010 was a top piece, which is like a crossover. That's the stuff you had to have back then. And I had the big GLI speakers and full range and, and bass speakers. And uh, I had like an amazing system. Mm -hmm. That's what really got me hot. That's what really got me good. Because once you get equipment, now it's like, I can play anywhere. I played in the World Trade Center, uh, you know, the uh, room called Skydive, like an incredible room overlooking New York City. And you put that sound system in there at five or 600 people and it's pumping and you're rocking them and it's like, this is what, that's why I didn't go to law school. <laughs> mm -hmm. I went to law school too, but I, I wasn't thinking that way then. Right. Now, yeah. how hard was it to get a residency at a nightclub in those days? I'm sure there were a few nightclubs that played hip hop, R&B, oriented music, and a lot of up and coming DJs were all jockeying for the same nightclubs to try to get on and get their name out. Yeah, you know, I was really blessed because the first nightclub I worked at, um, somebody invited me to play. It was three of us playing and he played one part at night, my other boy played another part, and I played the other part. I had my boy help me because he had the records I didn't have. I had a lot of records he didn't. The other guy, though, got the gig, but he wasn't really much of a DJ. So he ended up playing like three or five songs, and, and we were back on. But he got me that first gig, and we actually paid him, like split the money. The second week, uh, my boy couldn't come. So I had to go. He told me early. I'm not going to be able to make next week, so you got to get the records I, don't, I have that you don't have. So I went out and bought some more records. And so I went and played, and the other guy played, again, five or six records. So I basically played the whole night. And then the third, and I still split the money with all of them. And then the third week, dude was like, well, if you got the records, then what am I bringing records for? They'll just take the gig. So I did it. 
and still paid him, paid the other guy. And I said to the other guy, wait a minute, you're not really doing anything. You got the gig and I appreciate it. I can still pay you for a couple more weeks, but I can't do it forever if I'm going to keep playing. So we ended up working something out and, and that was good. So I was blessed in that because when I worked for those guys, um, it was called the Urban Bankers Coalition and a bunch of, you know, vice presidents of banks and, you know, in the New York City area. They were doing it in the club and the club owner and I hit it off and he was like, well, can you work some of the other nights? Because that was a uh, Monday night. He said, can you work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? I was still going to school. And I was like, I could do it, but I could only do it these hours. And he's like, okay. And then we worked it out. Uh, I think I worked from like five to 10 or something. And I did Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Then Thursday night, these other guys came and said, can you work again in the same club? Can you work on Thursday? I'm like, yeah, I could work. But like, they're like, but it's still four in the morning. I was like, man. So I was like, okay, let me try it. I did one Thursday and it was packed and that was it. I was hooked. Then I was like, oh man, I got to. I got to figure out what to do because I was going to school and doing that. It was like, I was trying to do, and I did both, but those were the days though, man. So when I got that opportunity, the first shot to be a resident DJ, it wasn't about anybody else. It was just about myself getting my skills up to the point where I can play consistently. The crowd kept coming. It kept getting bigger and bigger. I got better and better. Then I, I was on the mic as well as DJing and it was, and then next thing you know, I'm working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then they added a Saturday and then they ended a Friday, added a Friday. And that was it. Now I'm working six days a week and I'm, I'm like loving it. Wow. You know, and, and that's what did it. It was like that love of music brought me in and pulled me in. And before you know it, I'm a resident DJ and I'm working consistently five, six nights a week. What else could there be? You know, right. after that, I was so. Mm. Did you ever visit the rooftop or Harlem World? Yes, 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 yes. And that was, you know, that was New York. When you're in New York, you go everywhere pretty much. Um, but one thing I got to say about the rooftop, there's probably like one of the hottest clubs in New York at the time. There were others, you know, 371 and, you know, so many big clubs, DJ Hollywood, et cetera. Those, you know, those cats had it popping in Harlem. Harlem was big. The Bronx was big. Um, you know, disco fever was was popping. You know, we I went to I went pretty much everywhere. Went to the garage. You know, on nights off, I'd go to the garage because I would say, on Friday night, my boy Herb Powers Jr. was a mastering engineer. Would invite me because he would if Larry wasn't playing, Francois K was playing, and we go hang out in the DJ booth and talk and and BS with each other. We had a ball. We had a ball, and that's the time in between after my club closed. I was in between clubs for about. I don't know, about nine months or so. I did a lot of times and spent a lot of time in the garage listening to sound system, listening to how music was. How, one thing I realized about DJs is different DJs have a different approach to music. My approach was always the hottest part of the song with the hottest part of another song or the guitars with another guitar. Those guys learned, they showed me something else. They showed me how to use the sound system to increase the sound of a song. They'd start a song off and all you're hearing is the highs. They play the highs of one song, you know, the symbols of one song into the symbols of another song. And then they turn it up a little, turn it up a little. And then before you know it, they run the bass in, crowd goes crazy. And you're like, I, I had to learn how to use the sound system. The garage is where I learned that. That system was amazing. You know, they learned how to tweak the system to the point where you could hear like, like a uh, love sensation or something you hear 
love sensation. Ah. But you're hearing just the string part of it, not the actual, like you're hearing the instrumental. And then next thing you know, they they turn the music up and you hear Lolita Holloway screaming. And it's like the crowd goes crazy. She's like, love sensation. The crowd's like, ah. So I learned there that you can use the system to get that same effect that I was getting from playing and mixing records. So I that that, that added a dimension to my life and a dimension to me as a DJ because I realized that the sound system in a nightclub makes all the can make all the difference. Right, because I was listening to an old recording of Kid Capri when he was DJing at the tunnel back in 1990, and there was a yep. record skipping in the middle of the set, and he played it off so well and blended to another record. Crowd went nuts. They didn't even notice because if you were around New York around 89, 90, you heard that mixtape right. where he blended Impeach the President and Stephanie Mills, something in the way you make me feel. That was blasting uh -huh. up and down. And it was very revolutionary because you're taking a well-known breakbeat in hip-hop circles hip -hop, right. and Stephanie Mills' vocals on top of that. And yeah. it just opened up the floodgates. So can we talk about the impact yeah. of Kid Capri and all of the mixtape DJs that came after? Yeah, I mean, I think Capri was always dope because he was nice with the turntables and nice with the mic. And that was Harlem to me. DJs like Kid Capri made it work because it was about the mic game and the turntable game. It's like what you said to them was as exciting as what you did on with Musical.ly. Same thing with DJ Hollywood. DJ Hollywood, you know, Eddie Chiba, they had people screaming stuff. They had they would say something and they would answer. It was like, how they find that out? How they know that? And these guys were so incredible at that. It wasn't always about just DJing. It was about DJing and that mic work. And that those two worked together. So yes, Kid Capri, shout out to him. Incredible DJ. He always came and brought it, especially blends, doing blends and cuts. Incredible. Mm -hmm. No, definitely got the turntable skills going. Yeah, Kid Capri also. Ron G was nice with the blends too. Yes, Ron G and Ron G had a lot of mixtapes. He was one of the, he was like the mixtape king for a minute. Every time you turn around, it was Ron G. Ron, good brother too. Really good man. Really good brother. Yeah, because I can remember, of course, being down south. When you got something from New York, you knew it was going to be official because everything came down yeah. south a couple of months later. While in New York, it's like, oh. We didn't heard this months ago, but for us, it was brand new. But that just goes to show you yep. the sign of the times, how slow everything was because there was no internet and no ways to communicate other than snail mail. Yeah, New York was the hub. So a lot of creativity was going on in New York. And as a result of that, all the artists were there. They were coming to the clubs. They were listening. They were writing. They were producing. They were making music for the New York clubs. In fact, even as a DJ, I would go to recording studios to hang out with musicians just to do play do hand claps on songs just to like you know four guys in a circle clapping their hands like this on beat and if you did it wrong you had to stop and re-record it there was no punching in back then so you you had to do it for four minutes if it's a four minute song clap on beat for four minutes try that it's pretty hard so all those early songs a lot a lot of south soul songs different artists i was on you know I'm caught up, stuff like that. If you listen, there's a clap track and you hear, and that's what we had to do. That was part of it. So the engineers would call us, yo, could you come down and do some clap for us? I'm like, sure. But I got to hear the music, got to meet musicians, hang out with them in the studio and watch them create. You know, my, my man, Kashif, rest in peace. We'll never forget, man. He invited me to the studio. He's recording his album. And he's like, yo, come down. I want you to hear some. 
I met Whitney Houston in the studio, but he was making his album. And I was like, he was on fire. Like I remember him doing a part of a song and he didn't like it. And he's like, he recorded that, that same part of the song about for about two hours. And finally I'm like, what are you missing in the song? He said, you know what? I don't know, I'm gonna get a mic and go in this room. He went, got a mic, he went into the room and all he did was, Mm. 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 he added that to the song and it was incredible I was like that was two hours and that's that showed me like the, the commitment of a musician and it came out incredible um the song is are you my woman it's on Kashif's album and and if you listen closely you'll hear that it's sort of an interlude part in the song and it's like it's little things like that that made me really love musicianship and DJing because it's like I watched the create the creative process. I go went to the studios and watched them create, watched them write the song and you know produce the song, add instruments to the song. Got to meet all the musicians as they were doing it. They were cool with my input because I had great ears. So they were like, "What do you think about that? What what should go there? How should the intro go?" I was very big on telling producers to make sure they mix intros for DJs to blend together. Because guys would just start the song and I'd be like, no, you can't do that. You, know, you have to have, like, for example, um, uh, uh, Melissa Morgan. You know, Bo Huggins was, uh, it was Hush Productions. And, and Bo Huggins had a song called, on uh, uh, Melissa Morgan called Fool's Paradise. If you listen to the original version, it starts, it just starts. And I was like, you have to have a beat in before it. They're like, no. I'm like, I'm telling you. Put a beat in there, watch what happens. Because DJs did not blend it. You're playing one song, how do you blend it in another? So I said, put a beat, one beat. They put that beat and that song took off. Because that's all it takes sometimes. So they put, bap, da 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 And so when DJs play it, that's how they play it. If you listen to the song, if you listen to the original, you'll hear it just starts. You listen to the version that I introduced, and bam, there's a clap, and the song went. That's, that's what I mean about creativity being close to producers and, and the guys making music allowed me to have that kind of input. Right. And Hush Productions, very, very unsung. You mentioned Melissa Morgan. They also had Freddie Jackson, Melba Moore, yeah. Lilo Thomas. Yes. That whole yeah. run that they had should be given a lot more recognition. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, there would be no Stephanie Mills without them. You know, like her, some of her greatest music came from them, you know. So I think that and, and same thing with, with Evelyn Champagne King. You know, that was that was basically the Hush Production sound. If you think about it, you listen to Shane. You listen, you know, listen to I Don't Know If It's Right. All those songs were influenced by those guys and those set that set of musicians. Not to mention the fact that Melissa could sing her life away. Freddie could sing. Kashif could sing. Melba, because they were all pure singers. Every one of them. And great musicians, great writers, great singers. And then don't forget... Uh, another one that came out of that crew was Lala, LaForest Pope. Cope? LaForest. I forgot. It. I think it's Cope. I think it's her last name. Mm-hmm. And she's the one that wrote uh, uh, you two songs love. with Whitney. One with, um, I can't remember the name of the song now. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I just yeah. draw a blank. But yeah, I believe it was You Give love. Good Love. I think she did. You, you Give, give good, good Love. That's right. That's right. You yeah. Give Good Love. Wow. Like, so- incredible songwriter. Mm-hmm. Very, very good songwriter. So what was your thoughts when you first heard Temporary Love Thing by Full Force? I mean, that beat hit, it just had that bite. And like I say all the time, Full Force, they laid the groundwork for what was to later come with New Jack Swing and what Teddy was doing. 
Yes. What I love about those guys is they were grinders, man. They, they, those guys, again, lived in the club. They lived in Bentleys. I could think of every Friday and every Saturday, if they're not rehearsing, they were in Bentleys listening to what was hot. But they incorporated all the stuff that they heard in the club and they went and recorded it. And that's what made them great, in my opinion. So that's why I tease Bolo and Lou and tell them, I taught you everything you know, you know, because those guys, when they first came with Temporary Love Thing, amazing. But before that, they gave me a copy of Roxanne Roxanne on a cassette. And I played it at Bentley's and the crowd went bananas. And I remember the owner of the club came and yelled at me, what are you playing? What are you doing? What the hell's going on? I'm like, this is a hit record. What? It sounds terrible. What are you talking about? It was a cassette. So of course, we're playing vinyl records versus a cassette. The quality wasn't as good, but the crowd knew it. And it excuse me. The crowd knew it and they loved it. And of course, that became a big hit. Same thing with Temporary Love Things. Same thing with Alice. You know, we played Alice first at Bentley's, that bass line. Doom, 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 doom. I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's almost like um, uh, Skin Tight. That's what I think the inspiration for that bass line was. Skin Tight by Ohio by um, Ohio yeah, Players. Ohio Players. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I think that bass line came from because it sounds just like that. The crowd would go crazy when they heard that bass line. So, you know, it, it helped my career as a DJ. It helped me influence producers and artists. And that was my life, man. Right. And those guys, those brothers, those three brothers and, and, and other three, those guys are incredible people, incredible humans. You know, Bowlegged Lou, Paul, B Fine, Jerry, you know, all them cats, man, those those full force cats did incredible things for my life and my career. They helped me tremendously. Mm. Now, who idea was it at Columbia to have Shep Pettibone remix A Hard Day for George Michael? Because George Michael was my, already yeah. exploding on the charts and Faith yeah. was the first album to go number one on the R&B charts by a white artist. That's right. That was my idea, along with Gail Brusewich. She co-signed it for me, which is good, because we were in a label meeting and everybody in the label meeting thought we were crazy getting a, a remixer to do that song. They were like, well, why would you do that? No, that doesn't make sense. When Shep did that mix, everybody was a believer after that because they didn't understand what we understood. We're thinking about radio play. We're thinking about commercial radio and clubs trying to match the two on, you know, having a commercial radio sound that could play in the clubs. That's what we were trying to do. Gail was the club promotion person. I was the DJ, but also an a person. And I was trying to put it together. They let me go. Once they let me do it, I was gone from there. And I realized remixing was it for me. And Shep did an incredible job. Yeah, definitely that. And was it also your idea to get Jam and Lewis to do the remix for Monkey? That was not my idea. That was actually somebody in the West Coast came up with that. But it was incredible. It was incredible. It was a great mix. Jay Landers. I think Jay Landers was the one who talked them into it. Yeah, because I was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I was watching an interview not too long ago with Jam and Lewis, and they were saying that George Michael told them that he wanted them to do the remix for Monkey because he heard the cool summer mix that they did for Janet for Nasty. Janet, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that came out of the West, that particular one came out of the West Coast. You know, that's the one thing about Columbia Records I could say. The one thing is that they, uh, we, they let us collaborate so well on music, you know. The other a and people can influence what you're doing. You know, if you're doing a remix, like we all, a bunch of us worked on the Mariah album, on the first album, Vision of Love. 
we all had input. And it was amazing. That's why the album's so amazing. That is a hit album from beginning to end because of the input of A&R guys who really love music and said, that belongs there, that part belongs there, those backgrounds are wrong, you gotta redo them. We had so much input that it made it work. It made it like, it was almost like a competition, like to, to make Tommy feel, Tommy or Donnie feel like we were doing our job, we would listen intently and try to pick the songs apart to make them better. And we were able to do that. So I gotta say, the, the one thing about Columbia Records, I gotta say as, a, as an a person, it's probably the best place I've ever worked as a music executive because they let you, it's like a, a music university. They let you be creative. It's about creativity. You know, the promotion guys let them promote, but when you're creating music, they want it to be creative. And I, I love that about them. Now, where that was, that, was now, a change in my life. now when Mariah first came in and Vision of Love hit, was it always Columbia's intent to have her be pop first and R&B secondary? Because we kind of saw her yes. go more the R&B route later on when Music Box, Butterfly, the later albums, but it felt like she always wanted to be more R&B out the box. She did. She wanted to be R&B out the box. But the thing about Columbia back then was they had set her up so well in the pop world that, I mean, pop saw the pictures. When they did the album cover, the one with the microphone, the black dress, if you remember that old school mic, once they saw that once, they took it to pop radio. This is our new artist. Everybody's like, I can't wait to hear it. So it was already set up. And the urban world, they always gonna check for Mariah because she's an urban girl. And so it was always gonna work, but pop, you know, R&B was gonna happen for her no matter what. But pop was really kind of a, a blessing in that they went all out for her. They loved her, they were waiting for her. The second her song came out, they were playing it. And, and so, yeah, the, yeah, the labels, again, Columbia Records, man. Yeah, because yeah, when I heard, Matola. yeah, Matola, Donnie Einer, all those guys, because when I heard yeah. I Can't Let Go, I was like, this record sounds very similar to Make It Last Forever. Yeah. See, and that's the thing. She was very much influenced by other people, but she wasn't trying to make their songs. She was making her own songs. She was making Mariah's songs. Mariah wasn't trying to, you know, reproduce somebody else's music. She was always trying to create something. She's a great writer probably one of the best writers I ever worked with other than maybe like Earth, Wind & Fire or something right. because she's a pure writer. Like she'll take her time to make it make sense. And you think about that, like, you know, look at the incredible music she's made, look how many albums she sold. And that's why. That is what it takes to make great music. Listen to the song, take it apart and say, what's wrong, what's right with it? Or you write it like intro. We did intro, we heard it, we are like, it's incredible. Kenny Green was a great writer. Mariah is a great writer. When they can write stuff and hear it and dissect it and, and find out the pieces that don't work, they change it, you know? Going back to intro, um, Kenny Green wrote a song for Real Seduction and he ended up giving it to Mary and he changed it. Uh, I, I'll say some of it. Love was made, made of many things. One of them is trust, but I don't trust you anymore. The things you say, the things you do, um, they don't hurt me. They don't hurt me anymore. And then the rest of the song was, tell me what you want me to be. We can do this. We can get it right. And that was for, I mean, that was not, that was for um, real seduction, but he ended up changing that part and just going with, we, you don't, you don't have to worry. He gave that to Mary, but that was a real seduction song. The song was written for them and he started it 
and then change it. I'm like, then when I heard it, I was like, why you give it to her? He's like, she needed one more song. I was like, oh man, I needed that song. But you know, that's that's music. Yeah. But that was the song. Man, that happens all the cool. time. You get it right. Yeah. And 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 he changed it. He changed it to you don't have to worry and kept the same verses and had changed it. And, and you know, all that. Uh, 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 the, uh, 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 I'm sorry to do that, but yours was my own, and you treat me like all that stuff was not in there. He added all that just for a Mary song, but that song was "Tell me what you want me to be." We can do this. We can get it right. That was the song, and it was an incredible song. I was like so happy about it, and then when he gave it to Mary, I was not so happy anymore. Right. So why is it, in your opinion, that you think new kids? kind of struggled when the R&B strategy wasn't working. It wasn't until pop got a hold of them once Please Don't Go Girl got played on that pop station in Florida that they exploded. Because at this time, they were doing Apollo, Soul Train. They even had yeah. an original version of the video that only got airplay on BET. Yeah, I think, well, you know, that, that's Maurice. A lot of that is Maurice star because Maurice had such an incredible relationship with the urban world because of New Edition and what he had done there. And because he vowed to do it again, he was gonna take these boys everywhere he took New Edition. And that's how he felt. So he was gonna take them through there no matter what and get them vibing in the urban world. And then if it worked pop, great. But he was going, and we all were going really straight R&B. We were trying to get make them the biggest R&B group, trying to make them New Edition part two. And it ended up better because once the pop world got it, they snatched it. it. Was like, no, this is ours. Thank you very much. And and when we sold so many records, it was like, this is incredible. When when they started, when you started seeing girls hiding in garbage cans and stuff, you know it's gonna be something big. When they, I mean, they were hiding in garbage cans, going they go in the hotel room and there are the girls. How'd you get up here? You know, it's just that's when you knew it was gonna be crazy. You know, so but but urban. They were going to be an urban group no matter what. They were going to have an urban vibe until Pop just said, give me all the pop you got. Just keep giving it to me. It's like, you know, feeding their vein. They were, they were like, we need more. We need more. That's how we ended up with, what, five albums? Think about that. In a very short period of time, they had five albums and sold hundreds of millions. Well, I don't know. I guess about 100 million songs. No, nah, more than that. More than that. So, so think about that. 100 million albums. Just imagine the airplay that you'd have to generate to do that. Even 30 or 40 million albums. Think about that. And, and to me, it's like what makes them so incredible was that they were, that Maurice made them a single oriented group. They had a single, they had another single, they had another, you know, you have an album with five singles, six singles, you have to sell a lot of records. You know, people, instead of buying a single after a while, they'd be like, well, I got this song single, I got that single, I got some, I might as well buy the album. Once the next one hits, like after the third one, they're like, I'll buy the album. So they have three singles now, and the fourth one, they're going to buy the album. So you, you really you get to sell a lot of records that way. Right, because thinking about their phenomenon, I mean, bed sheets, dolls, cartoons, 1-900 number, anywhere and everywhere. Because when I interviewed Danny and Maurice, it was like, we don't even know that we're that huge in the scene the groundwork that they laid with the boy bands to later come with Factory Boys, NSYNC, 98 Degrees, take that over in the UK. It's just amazing to see that everybody's 
still following the blueprint that they laid for the pop side. Yes, and 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 again, I'm going to reiterate this because it, it bears repeating. It is Maurice Starr and Cecil Holmes that set up that direction, you know, and it's because of what happened with New Edition, and they felt like it was important to take them and make them the 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 white version of New Edition. And they succeeded so well that everybody just kept using the same formula again and again and again and again. But really the credit should go to Cecil Holmes and Maurice Starr because that's the direction they set up and, and it worked. Right. Now, was there any attempts when you were over at Atlantic to take Spread My Wings by Troop over the pop? Yes. But Atlantic at that time wasn't as well versed in crossing. Again, that's why I give Columbia credit because Columbia had a label-wide approach. Atlantic had a divisional approach. There was a different, there was a, a line of demarcation between the pop world and the urban world. They came together sometimes, but often it was separate. And um, I think the visionaries at the time when they put together the labels had everything kind of separated because it made them kind of compete against each other. It was harder though, because they were competing to come together on a record. So it made it harder. Whereas Columbia, there was no such competition. It was like, you know, Urban would sell records and Pop would sell records. You know, if you have, just think of, of, you know, Philly International or Michael Jackson or something like that. It wasn't considered, they weren't separating them like that. The Urban Division did what they could do. The Pop Division did what they could do, but they all reported to the same person. Whereas Columbia, I mean, whereas Atlantic, it was very separated. You know, the pop person had their, their head, R&B had their head, and then the two heads would get together and try to figure out how to make it work. It wasn't as easy. Mm -hmm. So I, I think as a result, um, you know, getting a record like that to break, getting spread my wings to the cross, very difficult, you know, a lot, a lot harder. And the labels, again, they were a lot different back then because they didn't have the vision always to see that if they put it together, not every record, but if you put together enough of them records, you're gonna sell a lot of records and everybody's gonna get the credit. Everybody's gonna get the platinum and multi-platinum plaque, you know? Mm -hmm. Which makes me think about MCA and how they got it right with Bobby and Don't Be Cruel. Yes, again, different approach. The approach was a label-wide approach at MCA. You know, Gerald Busby was in charge of the label. So he was like, let's get this going. Everybody, everybody, all hands on deck. That was that was a system that that I think worked, you know? I think even even if you look at Mo Watson at at, at, um, at at Warner Brothers, I think that was the approach too. It was like they had your urban records, they had your pop records, but they were still trying to drive them through the wall. They were trying to get them to hit together as a group. Atlantic wasn't like that. Atlantic was very, there was, there, like I said, there was a line of demarcation between the pop division and the urban division, and they didn't always meet. Now, urban was very strong, very, very strong. Promotion-wise, um, but they couldn't. You know, if it's a pop record, they got to pass it on. And pop was big on certain records, but not everything. They weren't as good to me at crossing urban. They were better at crossing like, you know, house records, you know, like that, or dance records. They were. It was easier for them to cross a dance record than a straight urban record. You know, like a pop, pop goes my love or something like that. Like Levert. It's going to be a lot harder for the pop division there to get that record and, and, and cross it. Right, because I believe Casanova by Levert was a crossover hit for them, right? It was a crossover hit. That was, 
um, Soul Train. <laughs> that was that 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 Soul Train had such a grasp on the audience that by the time pop radio heard it or got it, it was already like a hit in their households. You know, they were hearing it every day because that was such a it was Soul Train record. Man. Soul mm-hmm. Train had such an influence on people. It would come right into your living room every Saturday, no matter if you're black or white. You know, all the young white kids would watch the Soul Train back then. You know, they were. They just right. were. Right. So all of those artists, that's where they came. Think about it. New Kids on the Block was on Soul Train. <laughs> yes, they were. You know? That's right. Soul Train was the go-to. And it surprises me that New Kids got on Soul Train, but how come George Michael never got on Soul Train? I know Wham! and stuff got played, but when yeah. Faith was at his height, he never got on Soul Train, and I found it... Well, you know, he was in England. You know, George was in England a lot, so he didn't always get on. It wasn't that easy. And, and you know, I got to think about that. I kind of remember he was, but I'm not positive. I'm going to check that out. I don't remember, honestly. Yeah, cause, yeah, because I felt that that would have been a win-win because, you know, Faith, yeah, like I said, yeah, crossover. Because Wham was definitely on. Wham was definitely on. Wham was dope, man. Everything She Wants, that's got to be one of my all-time favorite songs to play as a DJ because when you blend it in, people are like, you know, they're dancing and then they hear it and they start hearing that bass line, doom, 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 doom. You know, and then they, they, he starts singing. And, oh, man. I love that song, and I love that song in a club. Again, those are songs that I would play in Bentleys as an R&B DJ in an R&B nightclub and play those records to that crossover crowd, and they would love it. And mm-hmm. it's all in how I blended it in and how I just wrote off another record that they knew and that they loved, and then before you know it, they're hearing it, and they're like starting to hum along, and bam, record hits, and they start screaming. Yeah. Mm. Now can we talk? Yeah. Now can we talk about this woman that was on Atlantic, who I felt was one of the top singers doing that crop of '80s female R&B singers. Love mm-hmm. under new management. Baby, be mine. Come share my love. Can we talk about Mickey Howard? Yes, I love Mickey Howard. Matter of fact, I got a shout out, man. She did a show with us at the Inkwell uh, a couple of years back, and, and we we intended doing some more shows together as well. What an incredible artist, incredible influencer, just a great 100% artist. She was, a, is a consummate singer, is a consummate artist. And, you know, she had her challenges in life like so many artists do. But talk about a great person with a great, fun, crazy personality. Mickey crazy, but she's the coolest person, man. An incredible singer, like a singer singer. She can give singer class all day long. Just incredible. Mm-hmm. And I, that, I love her as a person and as an artist. Now, wasn't Michelle also signed to Atlantic as well? Yes, but she was uh, through Dr. Dre, and uh, she had her first album that popped. And then I wasn't there at that time. When I got there and I asked Dre to do album, he's like, "I ain't do no more records with her, dog." I was like, "Damn, no more records with her. You ain't getting no more records out of me with her." I was like. Okay, I wasn't getting in the middle of that. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know any of the story until I saw her show and talked to her. I didn't know it was even like that. I thought they were good. I was like always under the impression that that was her man. You know, Trey was her man, and I didn't know. I really didn't. Um, until I saw her biopic, I did not really know what was really going on with her. And then I remembered later about Suge 
And I never put two and two together until I saw it. It was like, that makes sense now. Cause he was like, <clears throat> I'm not gonna have anything to do with her. You gonna have to get somebody else to do that. I'm like, all right dog, no problem. You know, what do you say? What are you gonna say? You know, um, but yeah, a dope singer. Again, another dope person, dope personality. Has also performed for me at the club, at my club, the Inkwell. And, uh, and I love her as well. Cause she's such a, a real down to earth, good person. And uh, and I'm gonna have her back as well. I'm gonna have a back partying with us. Right, and we mentioned MCA, yeah. And we mentioned MCA earlier with them biting the apple with Bobby Brown and Don't Be Cruel, biggest selling album of 89, Crossover Smash. But they also still had success with New Edition. The Heartbreak album was huge. The Heartbreak tour, huge. And then everything to come off with the solo acts after that. So what did you think that MCA did right with the Heartbreak album? And then, of course, Bobby, we talked about earlier, and then all the solo acts that came after with BBD and Ralph and then Johnny uh, later on going over to Motown. It was, a, it was a formula that really worked. I mean, they like Maurice Starr had a great formula with that group, and he put it together. He made it work. He had an idea of where he wanted them to go. He took them really far. And then when they broke off from him, that's when that album came, and they were, they were like, it was almost like they were in jail at one point, and then they get out. Now they're free and they start being free. That's what I think happened musically. Once that album came, they took off. And they were just like, it was almost like somebody let the shackles off of them and they blew up. That's, that's what I think happened. And then all the other groups, they, they just lived off that fame and they thought about that tour. They thought about the performances. That tour made their careers. Is that any heartbreak tour? Insane, man. The amount of money they made, the, the impact that it had in each state was amazing. They did very, very well. And as a result, it spurned the career of each artist individually. And then right after that, it, you know, it spurned um, Johnny Gill. Johnny was already popping, but put him in the group and it's on and popping. And it's like, it's a new world. And same with Bob. Bobby was crazy back then. Don't get me wrong, Bobby was crazy, but um, Bobby had a lot uh, of success as a performer. They loved him. They saw him. He had a spark, you know, and, and that's what happened. It's like he got to the point where he felt like this should be my group or it should be about me or whatever. And it wasn't a group built on that, really. It wasn't. It wasn't built on one person. Um, but he kind of felt like he was the star and he should be the star. And maybe he should have been. But it didn't work well in the group. The, the one thing I got to say is this. Back in the day when a, a star, when, let's say there's a person singing. When that star would leave, the group would diminish, you know? And it was at a point where once he became a star, that group was determined not to diminish. That's what made them win. They were like, no matter what, we're gonna keep going. And I, I really like that. I really appreciate their artistry because, you know, so many times, even like, you look at Teddy Pendergrass, how Melvin in the Blue Notes, Right? It wasn't as big as Teddy. Teddy was huge. Helmet was a good group. They had good records. But once he left that group, it was like, who? Now, they were smart enough to keep it going. And he never disrespected them, even in, in his solo career. But there was a point at which it was like, Teddy Pendergrass, Helmet with the Blue Notes. And then it sort of, as he, <clears throat> as he progressed in his artistry, he kept giving them props. So that they weren't dead. And I think that's important. Some other groups didn't do that and kill the group, you know? 
Right. So what was your thoughts on today? The group today? The group today, Big Bub and those guys. Oh, man. I love Big Bub. That's my dude, too, man. We were trying to do an album with him at Atlantic as well. It just never, we couldn't get it right. Um, love Big Bub. Love today. Um, you know, that was Teddy's baby. Teddy was like always trying to come with the next thing. That's what I love about him as a person. He's always very gracious. As a producer, he's very giving. Um, and I think that they were one song away from a smash. They were right there. They just never got that one song that took them there. But artist-wise, they really did well. Yeah, because I thought, why are you getting funky on me? Head, pop, crossover potential. And I tell people this all the time. Big Bub, vocally, was like Luther Vandross going full-blown New Jack yes. Swing. On the street tip, yes. And he just never... Good records, not great records. That's that's what I think would happen. Um, they needed a stronger writer, a writer that could, see to me they had good hooks. They just, the verses didn't always work. And that's what people don't realize. They think the hook is just it. The verse has got to make sense too. It's got to be a union. If you can still remember some old songs or, or if you listen to an Ashford and Simpson song, you listen to like solid. You listen to each individual word they're saying and all of it makes it sound like it's solid. So that the chorus, the verses lead to the chorus and it makes the whole song make sense. Sometimes people write songs and they don't always make sense. It's like they do it for the rhyme scheme or they do it to have some words in there or have something to sing, but it's not the same as a hit record is great verses, great chorus, um, a great second verse, a great bridge on most songs, or now they only have bridges, but a great bridge that brings you back to the chorus. You know, all those things, those songwriting techniques. What happened to me with Big Bub and them, they never had that single that was like, this is it, this is, you know, Lisa Lisa <clears throat> had, I wonder if I take you home. 25 years from now, somebody else is going to redo that song. Everybody, when they hear it 25 years from now, still going to be a hit. Today doesn't have a song like that. That's the best way to put it. They just don't. Right. And one act that I felt from the GR camp that should have exploded was Abstract. Abstract, yep. Same thing. Good songs, not great songs. But dope group. But, I mean, sometimes it's not there. You know, think about it. In the history of music, there are some songs that will last like you can listen, you think of Luther, people like that. You can name 15 Luther songs that are hits that you'll remember, you'll remember the words to and all that. Think of an abstract song like that. Just one. Mm. That's the problem. People don't realize that that's really what makes it work. The thing that makes a record last is it's gotta, it's gotta stay with you. Something that stays with you, not like abstract, great group, great looking, great sounding, but What's the Hank single that you're gonna remember forever? You know, even like when I think of, of groups like, um, uh, I can't remember the uh, Promise, I can't remember the name of the group right now, Jagged Edge. You think of groups like, they have some songs that are amazing songs that will be, somebody gonna sing those songs again, because they're incredible. That's what makes groups stay, give, have staying power. Right. You know, Lauren Hill, why was she so great? Her songs were amazing. They can take her songs right now, remix them, have they done recently, remix them and they become hits. That's a hit song. If a group doesn't have that, 
They can have the greatest name, the greatest body, they can look the best. It's not gonna matter. Right. You gotta have everything. And we could go down the list of all the groups that we thought great look, great sound, but didn't have it all together. But one group that did have it all together was four young men out of Philadelphia that was discovered by Mr. Michael Bivens, boys to men. So what was your thoughts on first hearing them and saying, Oh, these guys are gonna be something serious? You know what? I thought of take six and I they I would they, they were like take four. You know, it was like take six with four members and or the temptations with four members. That's what it sounded like to me. It was like, and then Michael found a gem and they were already there when he found them. They were like ready. And all he had to do was find the songs. He found them. Jam, I mean, what is it? LAM face, I think, and Jam, no, Jam Lewis. And it was over. It was over. Once they did that, those guys have looks. They have talent and they're true musicians. So, you know, I mean, sometimes a vocal musician is not the same as a person that sits and plays keyboards or drums or whatever, but they are in control of their instrument. And because of that, you can have them sing Humpty Dumpty and they sound good, you know? And that's that's what did it with that group. Yeah. Mike, incredible move. Incredible. That was a career changer for him. Mm-hmm, definitely that and he also hit it with um abc because abc let's not forget abc they were huge yes. aisha yes. crossover yes. hit and it was one of the first yes. early productions of a young dallas austin who also did my yes. music and i always love you on troops attitude and trent Reznor was the yeah. engineer on the attitude album no doubt hold on a sec one of my neighbors is playing some really loud. All right, so what I was saying was that ABC was huge as long as well as Boys to Men with Biv 10 and how Aisha yeah. was a crossover hit. And to me, ABC set the tone for what was later to come with Crisscross. Right. Crisscross as well as um as as well as the boys. It was it was definitely that vibe that they were trying to get that young vibe, that young almost like Jackson 5 kind of feel. And they nailed it. Like it was almost there. But Aisha was like a smash hit record. Once that came out, it was they were gone. And that made MCA a big label, man, because they had them, they had the boys, they had Michael. I mean, you know, they had um, you know, Belbiv DeVoe. No, was that on there? Yeah, Belbiv DeVoe. Um, you know, they had so many hits out of so many groups at the same time. It was amazing. They had um the men on pause. I can't remember the uh climax. climax. MCA was on fire, man. They had one act after another, after another, after another. When the boys came out, when Aisha came out, it was just like the kids are taking over. You know, that's how it felt. Mm-hmm. That was a good time. That, yeah. that was a good time. Yeah, and MCA, they also time. had Jody Watley and the Jets. Yes. yes, and the Jets. And the Jets were on fire. Um, yeah, and you know, it's funny because I was thinking about the Jets. I was like, the Jets was a much bigger group than people gave them credit for. It was a huge band, man. And they, it was a family. It was really, really nice. They had them. It was almost like the Osmonds or something like that. That was the vibe they were on. They, they had a nice little run. And then I don't know what happened there. I really always wanted to know what happened to the Jets. Did they run out of steam musically? Um, did they go in a different direction production-wise? I was always wishing that they would get them with Jam and Lewis or, or L.A. and Face and come up with some more hits. Because they were, they were hot. They were dope because they 
were from Minneapolis. And if you listen to Curiosity, very much in that same vein of the Minneapolis sound, like Erotic City, city that prints the yeah. time stuff. Yeah, they, they definitely had it. And, and Minneapolis was hot then for musicians, for great musicians. Um, but they never, after a while, the song started to fizzle and they ran into that mediocre song thing. They just couldn't get past it. Mm, now, one group, one thing about artists, hard. Mm -hmm. now, one group that had everything, they had a top five pop single R&B, biggest single of 91. They did a commercial for Sprite and they had some more crossover success where she's playing hard to get and everything like that. Can we talk about High Five? High Five, oh, incredible group. You know, as a DJ, I love playing that song. I love playing their songs because it was exciting, man. That was that was when young artists were hot, man. When people were looking for begging for the next young artist, it was like they, it was like a feeding frenzy. Like it, they never got enough of it. And um, high five is dope. Now I never knew were they from England or were they from America? High five, they are from the U.S. Uh, Waco, Texas. From Texas, okay. Because I never saw where they came from. Like they just came out of nowhere. They really did. Yeah, it based out of Waco. Waco. Based out of Waco. Waco. I, I like the way Crossover Smash It and Tony yes. Thompson's solo album, Sexational. Very underrated yes. album. Should should have gotten a lot more push. Well. Yeah, should have done better. Yeah, sometimes the promotion department does you wrong, you know? that That's the other thing I learned. Um, you can have a hit song or hit artist, but if the elements don't come together at the right time or if the label doesn't have the money to promote you, Anything can happen. There's no guarantees. That's why I give so much credit to to uh, to MCA, and, and because there was one time when it was just one hit after another after another. Columbia Records, same thing. Columbia Records, they, you know, they would beat a dead horse to death and still be hitting it. You know, they like they could make a record. Like look at what they what we did with um, LL Cool J Radio, like just to take that record and make it huge. It was an unstoppable record at a point. It's like, put it this way. We put that album out and we were like, this is the number one single. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Other people like, yeah, whatever. They thought they, number one single, man. Radio was like an anthem. Like in the street, anywhere you go in Queens or Brooklyn, Manhattan back then, they were playing it. You go on, on, you know, on a street where everybody's shopping, like young people are shopping with their parents or whatever, that record's playing. People are blasting out their car. I was like, this is a hit, but I didn't think the world knew it. I didn't think it was going to happen. Man, that record took off. And then L was ready. After radio, boom, he was gone. Like, to me, that was that's why he's one of my favorite rappers for all, of all time. He's in my top five because yeah. of that. Because of him as an artist, as a person, you know, he's, he's a consummate gentleman, a real down-to-earth person. He's a beast if you, if you treat him wrong. Um, and you know, he's just incredible as an artist, man. He he know he got it. He has that it factor. He has it. He's always had it. He's fun. He's a funny dude. I can, you know, I've had funny times with him. That was dope, man. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're talking about the golden era of hip hop. And late last year we lost a pioneer in golden era hip hop. And that was Ecstasy from Houdini. Can we talk about the impact of Houdini, Larry Smith, their production, and how it was almost pre-New Jet Swing because they had rap with R&B melodies? Right. You know, Larry Smith was a, a musician. And he had this 
vibe. This he loved hip hop, but he loved R&B. He was an R&B musician, and he wanted to fuse the two, and he did it. Now the thing with them was, um, they were <laughs> they were dancers. I don't know if people even know this. They were dancers. I mean, they. I'm sorry, they weren't dancers. I'm sorry. The, their dancers were UTFO, and so I had them perform at Bentleys, and UTFO were their DJs. I mean, their their dancers. And UTFO was much younger, so Houdini came to perform, and UTFO came, and the owner's like, "I'm not letting them in." I'm like, "But they're the dancers." He's like, "I'm not letting them in. They're too young. They look crazy. I'm not letting them in." I'm like, "But this is something that's gonna cement their career as guys." Let them in, they're kids. And I talked them into letting them perform. And, as the, and the stage wasn't that big and they couldn't really do as much as they wanted to, but it was really good. And I felt good because after that, that same group UTFO took off. So that's a good thing. Um, Houdini, I gave them one of their first shows ever. They performed at Bentley's. Um, it was a time when, um, at the time we were advertising on 98.7 Kiss, and uh, which is the big radio station in New York. And we made their record huge by doing this show. It was like, a, it was the whole city was focused on them and we had, we were packed. We were sold out within like 20 minutes of opening. It was insane. We ended up doing them another show. I think like a month later, we had a second part of the show because it was so big. Then after that, they did, they started touring in. That was it. But incredible guys, very humble. Um, and Grandmaster D's coolest, you know, it's good people. Um, uh, you know, to me, artistry is this. If you can find that simple thing where you have a producer that loves music and knows how to get your music right, and you guys flow off each other because that's what they did. That was sort of like after Run DMC. They were flowing back and forth, and that was hot. That was something that not too many rappers were doing at all. They knew how to flow, how to give one time, get the other time, give it, let them flow enough for it to work. Like Run DMC was sort of like quicker with it. Like, well, eh, eh, you know, they were more staccato, but but they were like, you get it first, you get it first. And that's what was so dope to me about them because they were the first group really to nail that properly with the R&B music and the hip hop music. It was like incredible. What an incredible marriage to me. Yeah. And then Larry, Larry was just the consummate musician. He was always a friend of Russell's and he was always Russell's sort of go-to musician you know, if he needed something, yo, let me see if Larry could do this. Let me see if Larry could do that. So but when he got Houdini, when he got Houdini with Larry, it was over. Yeah, because when I listen to One Love, I could easily hear Teddy Pendergrass with Houdini on the bridge doing a 16-bar rap. And it yeah. was just a great meshing, a great merging. And back to Columbia with Mariah. Now, was there an idea that Trailer Rams was gonna get a deal prior to the release of I'll Be There, or was that yes. only after that record broke? No, he was actually when we started hearing him on the demo, we were like, "Who's that?" Because it was supposed to be—I don't remember—it was supposed to be another artist, but it was her, Mariah, who wanted Trailer Rams to do it. And so we we're like, "Well, who's that? Why don't we just sign him?" Because we figured that would be a great springboard for him. But, and, and I think we offered him a deal and something happened, something fell through. He was supposed to be there and it just didn't work. But Trey Lorenz on that song was amazing. You know, sometimes it happens that way too, where artists don't always have that thing. You know, or sometimes it happens where like, uh, 
uh, I remember Terrence Trent Darby. I remember getting the single from England and I was like, this is a hit song. And they were like, everybody was like, no, it's not. I was like, this is a hit song. I'm thinking about New York. <coughs> I'm thinking about radio, pop radio to play this song. Not New York clubs so much, but pop radio. But I knew in my club I could play it because I had enough people that I knew would vibe to it. But the, the label didn't really get it at first. And then when it popped off, it popped off on its own, basically. Once it started, like it was almost like they would play it, it would take off. Every time they played that song, he was like a star before he even stepped foot on our shores. Right, because Terrence Trent Darby, if you listen to the Hardline according to Terrence Trent Darby, which came out, I believe, 87, it was like a meshing of Michael Jackson and Prince, and you merge it together, and boom, there it is. Yep, yep. that's exactly what it was. And he was dope, like as an artist, his vibe. He was like, and, and also a little bit of James Brown, too. He had a little bit of that in him, too. But definitely Michael and Prince. Mm -hmm. yeah, now, he, Terrence Trent Darby was dope. Yeah, very he dope. He, as an artist, as a performer, he was it. Mm -hmm. Definitely that sign, your name, wish him well. Dance Little Sister, If You Let Me Stay. Great records. Now, can we yeah. talk about, before we close, Prince Marky D and the Soul Convention and the work that him and Corey Rooney did? Man, those dudes. I'm telling you, man, I, I was surprised at Prince Marky D, man, because I was thinking Fat Boys all day. And I was like, he makes R&B records? What? Like, I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. I was like, he's actually nice with it, you know? Um, and, and Corey was a great is a great producer. And um, he had a lot to do with Mariah's success, too. Him and Tommy became fast friends. And, you know, Tommy was all about finding the producers for Mariah. When we were looking, he was, he was searching hard to keep uh, he, the vibe going. So he latched on to Corey. And then Corey had that success with Barry. It was over there. Then it was like, no, you come with me. It was kind of like Tommy's like, no, you come with me. So some of the success of Mariah albums that, that they worked on, Corey had a lot to do with. Um, and, and so, yeah, those cats, they were great music guys, man. Great guys who loved music. They loved hip hop. They understood what it was. And they were able to sort of mesh the two. But Prince Marky B, R&B, what? Crazy. Yeah, and he's getting them checks from Target because they used Real Love for their Christmas campaign last year. And the biggest mystery for me was I thought Menagerie should have blown up. The group that Corey Rooney yeah. and Prince Marketing was working yeah. on there. Menagerie now that I realized, I thought that they were yeah. a precursor to what was to later come with the whole Latin R&B movement, you know, kind of sort of like what Barrio Boys was doing over at SBK. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, it's all in the songs. Sometimes it's being ahead of time, being ahead of stuff. Um, I tried to do it as an A&R person. I had a group that was English and Spanish, and they were rhyming and chatting, reggae chatting and rhyming on a record. And I thought it was popping. It just didn't work. A group called Messengers of Funk. But they're the precursor to all these artists that are doing that now. So to me, it's like sometimes you're just too early. Sometimes you don't have that song. But... The concept was there for me, and I got the concept and thought it could work, but I just didn't have the single that made it work, that's all. Right, and it kind of felt like when New Jack Swing hit, when Groove Me and I Wanna first came out, it was like a lot of people yeah. were still stuck in that mid, early 80s R&B mode, and it was where yeah. they were two steps behind, while Teddy and everyone yeah, was were. two steps ahead, and everybody else yeah, was, I was caught I was on the, later. Yeah, I was the two steps ahead guy. 
And I was like, let's go this way. And they're like, well, what about? And I, I was always like, whatever worked before doesn't have to work now. You have to change. I remember even as a DJ, DJs were stuck in the mid 90 tempo, 90 from 90 to like 98. And they were in that tempo and that's all they wanted to do. And then an artist like Mary comes out and her record's like, you know, 112 or 116. They're going like, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna mix with that song? And I'm like, figure it out. Because you can't stay in the 90 tempo forever. You gotta go up there and you're gonna have to find songs. And then before you know it, another song comes out, another song comes out. You start blending those songs. Before you know it, you, you have a range now. It's, it's from 90 to 100 and something. And then you can go up the scale and down the scale. And so to me, it's like the creativity is the most important thing. The tempo and all that, that could come later. Focus on creating something. Once you have that, the song's good enough, it's going to work. You know, it's, it's going to work. But right. I, I never forget Mary, that, you know, when Mary came out with that song with um, uh, Just Fine, the tempo of Just Fine was so much faster than every other record that was popping. But Just Fine was such a great record that you're going to figure out how to get there because you're going to play that record no matter what. Even if, and some DJs at some point, no matter what they were playing, they just throw the record on because the record was so hot. And she mm -hmm. said, you know what, whatever she said at the beginning, they, they heard the intro, jumped on the dance floor. That's what it takes sometimes. Right. And I definitely want to give flowers to two unsung producers that don't get enough credit for what they did yes. for the music game. Herbie Lovebug, Azar, and Howie T. Yo, good brother too, man. Really good person. And never got the credit he should have got. He was the impetus behind Salt and Pepper from minute, second, one. And he did a lot to make them work. And, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of think of him as I think of Maurice Starr. Sometimes you're so invested in it and sometimes you do so much for it. You have to learn to take a step back and let it go sometimes. I think he wasn't ready to do that. Um, but I think, too, um, he still should get his credit for what he did because he created that. He knew what to do. He knew how to do it. And I'll never forget, I was in charge of a nightclub called Union Square. Um, I hired... Um, DJ Red Alert to be the DJ there. When we decided, we sat down every Monday to decide who's going to perform. And the first week he said, I got this group that's dope, these girls. I said, like, what's that name? He said, Salt and Pepper. I said, I love the name. He said, let's get them to perform. I was like, okay, how big are they going to be? He said, they're going to be big. I said, they're big now? He said, they're going to be big. So I said, you know what? Let's make it the second week. So the first week we hired just we had just ice perform because just ice was hot and it was Union Square. The, the line was down the block and around the corner. People couldn't even get in the club packed. The second performer that we had was Salt and Pepper and they ripped it out the frame. The third group we had performed at Union Square was Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. This is history. That's all I'm saying. Like I've been involved in so much music and nightclubs, so much music period. This is my love. That's why I love it. I mean, think about those three groups. You know, Just Ice, Rest in Peace. But think about, think about Salt and Pepper performing. Like the second week, a, a major nightclub opened in Manhattan. You know, and then right after that, Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, it was over. I mean, we, we cemented our control of that block. Mm -hmm. You know, we were, it, was, it was packed. Union Square was packed after that. 
Yep. Salt and Pepper definitely should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They pretty much broke down doors and barriers a la what Run DMC did, the female equivalent to Run DMC. Yes, absolutely. And Herbie should get all the credit for that, as well as the girls, but he should get all the credit for that because he was the impetus behind it. He made it happen. He made it really, really work. Right. And also Kid and Play. Let's not forget. Yep. Kid and Play too. Same thing. You know, those are, those are the guys in full force. Those are their boys, man. Those are always their friends. And Play was such a good dude, man. Like, I, I, I know Kid very well as well, but Play, um, when I was working at Columbia, he was helping me with something. I was trying to get, um, I was trying to get like imaging together. And I was always calling him for ideas. And yo, what should I do about that? Can you help me with this? And what, what do you think I should go? Where should I shop for them? That was the stuff that, that Play was about. He always had like the costumes and the images. He always had that right. He was a really good brother. Right. Really creative. Right. Definitely good. And do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap and also plug your social media and also any current projects? Oh, oh okay. Uh, let's see. Twitter is I am Sugar Daddy. Instagram is Sugar Daddy. The, no, I'm sorry. Twitter is Sugar Daddy the DJ. And Instagram is I am Sugar Daddy. Um, of course, it's the Inkwell NYC at Gmail or the Inkwell NYC. Um, dot com if you want to check my website. Um, what else? What else? What else? We got a lot of things going on. I can't really talk about it now, but things are popping off, baby. I know if COVID's here. COVID's almost over, and we have some incredible things going on. You know, definitely uh, expanding the brand. That's what we're doing. We're expanding the Inkwell brand, and uh, we're taking it to another level right now. All right, and you so have I'm a about that. yeah, and you have a I'm spot excited. here. When you when the ink dries and when you can talk, you know you can come yep. here. You can find this interview wherever you stream your podcast and on my YouTube channel, Beyond the Album Cover. Go to facebook.com slash beyond the album cover for all things related to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Kevin Woodley, thank you for coming back on to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Peace and love. Kevin Sugar Daddy Woodley, I'm out. All right.